Well, good morning, church family. You're going to grab your Bibles with me and turn to the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 18. If you're looking at the black Bible in the chair that you're sitting in, that should be found on page 904. And um, let's just pause once more and ask God for uh, his help as we turn to his word. Let's pray. Father, once again, we pause and recognize that you are God. We thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for the ministry of your Holy Spirit. We pray now that you would help us to hear uh, the words of Scripture, not as the words of man, but as the very words of God. We ask that you would bring conviction, that you would bring life, that you would bring peace, that you would bring hope, that you would transform us now. Your word is truth. We pray that you would sanctify us for your purposes. Set us apart for your purposes by your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I wonder if I asked the people that were closest to you to describe you, if they would say that you're a person who's easily offended. Or how would you answer that question yourself? Are you someone who's easily offended? And perhaps a stranger was rude to you at the grocery store. Maybe your friends went out together this last week and they didn't invite you. And maybe it's a, a spouse's consistent fault finding or a boss who is overly critical. When we're offended, we may begin to sulk or become defensive or angry. Maybe, maybe you're the type of person who, when you're offended, you can hold it back outwardly. No one can see the fact that you're taking offense, but inwardly, whew, your blood is boiling as your mind plays the offense over and over on repeat the rest of the day. Can you recognize that in your life? Taking offense can be destructive in our lives. The Proverbs, Proverbs 18, verse 19 says, a brother offended is more unyielding than a strong city. So the image that the Proverbs has for a person who takes offense is a strong city. Lock the gates. Put the defenses up. We're under attack. Taking offense makes us more unyielding than that strong city whose doors are now locked. When we're offended, we become inflexible. We close the gates of our heart. We become stubborn. We become so hard-hearted, so unyielding, that we don't have the ears to hear an appeal, even an appeal that's made in love. Now last week, we saw Jesus' trial begin. He was arrested and put on trial, and the trial begins in the darkness of night with the religious leaders. 
Caiaphas, the high priest, and Annas um, are, are the one interrogating him. And we know that these religious leaders want Jesus dead because of envy. But now in the second half of John 18, the trial moves from the religious leaders to Rome. Now he stands on trial before Pilate, the Roman governor who's in charge of Judea. Now, a little bit about Pilate. Pilate had risen to great heights. He had achieved worldly success and power and prestige. And so according to the world, Pilate's money and his power and his apparent success should have gained him freedom. But as Jesus taught us in John 8, true freedom is not, being, is not doing what I want apart from God. True freedom, Christian freedom, is being set free to do God's will. In that sense, Pilate was not free. He had all the accoutrements of the world, but he was not free. He was enslaved by his desires. Now, we're going to see in this text three times, Pilate, the Roman governor, will declare Jesus innocent. I find no guilt in him, he'll say. And so Pilate knows that Jesus should go free. He's an innocent man. But before we jump into the text as a whole, skip down to chapter 19, Verse 16, look at the last verse we're going to look at this morning. Chapter 19, verse 16. Here's the conclusion. In the end, he, that's Pilate, he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So Pilate knows he's innocent. How did Pilate make such a disastrous, evil decision? What we're going to find is that Pilate stumbles over Jesus. He stumbles over Jesus, who is the rock of offense. Pilate will take offense at Jesus, and because he's offended by Jesus, Pilate will become so unyielding, his heart will become so hard that he becomes unresponsive to the appeal of Jesus, an appeal of love, an appeal of kindness, and an appeal of truth. He doesn't have ears to hear it. And I think in John 18, Jesus uh, or John holds up Pilate, the Roman governor, as a mirror. Look in this mirror, church. When you look at Pilate, look in the mirror. We're meant to look in the mirror of Pilate to examine our own hearts so then we can see who Jesus is and not make the same mistake that Pilate makes. That we can respond differently to trust Jesus and enjoy life in his name. That's why John write, writes this gospel. So we're going to walk through the text together. Uh, We're going to break this account of his trial before Pilate into three scenes. So if you're taking notes, scene number one, an offended governor. Scene number one, an offended governor. That's 18, verses 28 through 40. Scene number two, a long-suffering king. A long-suffering king. That's 19, verses 1 through 11. And then our final scene, scene number three, deliverance. That's chapter 19, verses 12 through 16. An offended governor, a long-suffering king, deliverance. So let's look at the text starting in chapter 18, verse 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. 
they themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. We'll pause there. Now, just a, a textual note there in verse 28, it says that they, they, they didn't want to be defiled so they could eat, they could eat the Passover. Um, we, we know that, that Jesus and his disciples already ate the Passover. That's not a contradiction. Uh, this idea of the Passover is also connected with the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It's also synonymous in Scripture. So this feast would be a seven-day feast. This is when he says they want to eat the Passover. They, just, they want to eat all the meals and all the festivities that go with the Passover, including the unleavened bread. So that's not a contradiction. It's just it's a seven-day feast, not a one-meal type of a deal. All right, with that in mind, um, the, when, when Jesus was arrested, uh, he was arrested by the Jewish leaders, but the Jewish leaders used Roman soldiers. That's what we saw last week in the beginning of chapter 18. And so because they used Roman soldiers, it's safe for us to assume that Pilate was already briefed about Jesus and about the charges they're bringing against him and his arrest. And so the idea here is that if Pilate already authorized the use of his soldiers, the Jews in bringing Jesus to Pilate would no doubt expect Pilate to just rubber stamp their decision that they made in the darkness of night to put Jesus to death. That's what they expect, but that's not what happens. In verse 29, Pilate opens up a new trial. What accusation do you bring against this man? Now, the Jewish leaders had no case against Jesus, and so the quicker they could get this thing done, the better. And so Pilate opening a new trial and delaying the process would have frustrated the Jewish leaders. It would have exasperated them. That's the tone that you should hear in verse 30. The tone of verse 30 would have been a terse tone. If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. They're exasperated. Just get on with this. They were offended. But their assumption that Pilate would be their errand boy and just rubber stamp their decision that they made in the dark of night offended Pilate. Pilate's no errand boy. And so Pilate shoots back with his own offense and he retaliates. He says, take him yourself and judge him by your own law. You have to recognize what he's doing there. Pilate knows they want to put Jesus to death. Pilate also knows that with Rome as the one in charge and, and Israel as a puppet state of Rome, he also knows they don't have the authority for capital punishment. So when he says, you, you do it, he does it just to twist the knife a little bit because they just offended him. So Pilate's aim seems to be in order to humiliate the Jewish leaders. And so right off the bat, we see this ego power play between Pilate and the Jews, both of them are offended by the other. Both are trying to establish who's who. Both are trying to establish who's in charge. And so they kind of retaliate with harsh words and kind of biting words towards each other. 
In the exchange, John is going to use irony to make his point. John loves his irony. So the first irony shows up in verse 28. Notice the irony there. The Jews stay outside the governor's headquarters because they feared entering a Gentile's home would make them unclean. They're concerned about becoming unceremonially or ceremonially defiled. That's their concern. <laughs> and yet they're indifferent to the fact that they're trying to kill the innocent son of God. It's dripping with irony. Jesus rightly said in Matthew 23, 27, that these religious leaders are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. The second irony that John employs here comes as Pilate and the Jews kind of battle it out in their egotistical power trip. Both parties are offended because each party thinks that they're in charge. But the irony is as, as these Pilate and the Jewish leaders are battling out about who's in charge, neither of them are in charge. John uses his irony to show that God is actually the one in charge. Notice in verse 32, while they're battling it out, verse 32 says, well, this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. They think, they're arguing who's in charge, but all the time, God is just fulfilling his plan that was prophesied thousands of years, a thousand years before. In fact, if you look at Psalm 22 this afternoon, uh, Psalm 22 prophesies that the Messiah, the king, would be crucified. That's a Roman tool of execution. The Messiah would not be stoned to death, which was a Jewish means of, ex- of, of execution. So all these things are coming into line in order to fulfill what God had prophesied years before. God's in charge. God sovereignly directs history And he even uses the sinful, chaotic arguments of proud people for his good purposes. Through this sinful mess, we will see that Jesus will emerge as the true Passover lamb, the lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. It seems chaotic, it seems like this is a mess, and yet God in his sovereignty is bringing history into into do exactly what he wants it to do. So after Pilate talks outside with the Jews, they don't want to come inside to avoid becoming defiled, Pilate goes inside to talk with Jesus. And we're going to see Pilate go back and forth, outside then inside, outside then inside. And it's kind of a picture for us that just like he goes between Jesus and the Jews and he has to make a decision, we too have to make a decision between the world or Jesus. So keep that in mind. Verse 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew Your own nation and your chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? So to convince Pilate 
that Jesus is a serious enough threat to Rome that he deserves the death penalty, they actually bring the charge of treason about Jesus. Jesus claims to be a rival king to Caesar. That's worthy of the death penalty. That's treason. That's the charges they're bringing. So when Pilate goes inside and he meets with Jesus in private, he's not convinced. Remember, all throughout the night when Jesus was on trial with Caiaphas and Annas and the Jewish leaders, he had been up all night. He's got to be exhausted. This is now morning. He's been up all night. He had been punched in the face. Perhaps he's bloody. And it's very likely that he's still in chains as he stands before Pilate. So in verse 33, the, the, the second um, person pronoun you is actually emphatic in the Greek. We should hear Pilate looking at Jesus in verse 33 saying, you, you are the king of the Jews? Ah. It's almost like we can hear Pilate laughing, thinking, this guy is pathetic. They're concerned about him being a threat to Rome? How is he a threat? Now remember, at the beginning of chapter 18, verse 10, Peter took out his sword and swung his sword in an attempt to protect Jesus. Because Peter had the misguided Jewish expectations about the Messiah. Peter assumed that the the Messiah, the Christ, would come in with military might. And so when they came to arrest Jesus with their weapons, Pilate's wrong messianic expectations as a Jew said, well, it's time to fight. Let's grab the sword. Let's Let's go to battle. He had wrong, misguided expectations. And so when when, when Pilate asks Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? For Jesus to answer Pilate's question, he needs to back up and, and understand what question is Pilate asking? Does Pilate have the misguided Jewish expectation for the Christ? Is he asking this on behalf of the Jews? who have a kind of a a military might expectation for the Christ? Or is Pilate's question a genuine one that's based on his own understanding of Jesus based on what he has seen about Jesus? That's why he asks him in verse 34, you say it's on your own accord or did others tell you about me? So what happens in verse 34 is Jesus turns the tables on Pilate. The prisoner, Jesus, has become the judge. The prisoner becomes the interrogator. And the interrogator, who's Pilate, becomes the one who's on trial. Now remember, Jesus has the power to set Pilate free. He came to give life, freedom. But Pilate is offended by Jesus. We can, hear, we can hear Pilate huff in, in, in the end of verse, or the middle, at the beginning of verse 35. Am I a Jew? He's offended. Your own people handed you over. What did you do? Verse 36. Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, 
You say that I am a king, and for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? Now, key, I think, to understanding what's going on here, key to understanding what Jesus is saying is to, is to zero in on his phrase that his kingdom is not of this world. His kingdom is not from this world. So Jesus acknowledges, when, he, when he's asked the question, are you king? Jesus acknowledges that he is a king. But his authority does not originate from this world. His, his kingdom is not established the way that worldly kingdoms are established. When a ruler comes into power in this world, they assume that their power is given to them by the people that they rule, which is why rulers desperately watch the approval ratings. It's also why if the approval is not there, some rulers will use force to make sure they stay in power. So Jesus understands that his authority does not come from man. He understands his authority comes from God. He came from God. God God has given him the authority. He has given him the kingdom. And so here's the thing. Jesus is not a slave to opinion polls. You can't blackmail Jesus. You can't intimidate him. You can't bully Jesus into doing what you want because he's above that. This is why his servants, like Peter, do not need to protect him with their sword. Listen, because Jesus created the world, everything and everyone function as Jesus' servants. Even those who are in rebellion against him, they are his unknowing servants. He is the sovereign king. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. And he's the creator of all things. Therefore, all things serve his sovereign purposes, including the Jewish and Roman authorities who are, who are putting him on unjust trial. He's not intimidated by them. So Pilate responds, so you are a king. So there's a glimmer of, it seems like, Pilate's understanding something about Jesus. But this world's category or idea or definition of a king is simply too small to capture the fullness of what Jesus being the king means. You can't just, when you hear Jesus being a king, you can't just think of, of, of a monarchy of some state and think, well, that's what he means. No, his, the, the idea of Jesus being the king is too big for that. It's, it's in a different category, all its own. And so to help Pilate understand what it means that he's king, to help him along, Jesus describes his kingship by explaining his mission, why he came. He came, the text says, to bear witness to the truth. This is, this is what John established in the prologue. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, the word was God. John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. John 1.18, no one has ever seen God, but God in the flesh in Christ has made him known. As the word made flesh, Jesus came to bear witness to the truth. Not just some 
partial truth in a dictionary somewhere, but the truth, the truth about God, the truth about reality, the truth about you, the truth about this world. He is the truth through whom all truths make sense. He came to reveal the truth. And this is important for us because when humanity rejected God in the Garden of Eden, we claimed to be wise, that we're wise, we know better, but we became fools, Romans one twenty one says. And in our rejection of God, our hearts were, we became darkened in our understanding, we became alienated from God, and that's the state of all of us apart from God. But praise be to God that Jesus came into this world as the light of the world to bear witness to the truth. Truth that was twisted because of sin, truth that has been lost because of sin, truth about God, about ourselves, about this world, about reality, about life, about freedom. He came to turn the lights on for our salvation. So when Jesus, listen, when Jesus says in verse 38 to Pilate, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. That is a gracious invitation to Pilate. He's showing him, he's showing the governor who he is. And then he, in verse 38, invites Pilate in, into the light to hear and to align himself with Jesus who is the truth. Jesus is inviting Pilate to have life to have freedom. He sees Pilate shackled by his, he's enslaved to his desires. And he's like, that's why I came. I came to set you free. And he invites him to that freedom. We should see Jesus as good and as loving in this. But instead of stepping into the light and receiving what Jesus is offering, Pilate ends the conversation abruptly. What is truth? That's how I hear the tone of that question. Pilate is asking a question that is not the question, this is not the question of a philosophy 101 student. What is truth? Let's philosophize for a little bit. That's not what he's asking. This question is the question of a cynic. It's the violent response aimed at shutting down the conversation. Notice that Pilate does not wait around for a response from Jesus. He just storms out of the room, goes back outside. And remember what we said at the very beginning, what Proverbs talks about the the person who's offended, Proverbs 18, 19. A brother offended is more unyielding than a strong city. Peter, Pilate was offended. Pilate was offended not because Jesus is offensive, Pilate was accustomed to being the one in charge. Pilate was accustomed to being the most important person in every room he walked into. And so when Jesus comes in the room, and he's not the most important person in the room anymore, when he's not the one in charge anymore, he doesn't like that. Now, Jesus came to give life and freedom to sinners like Pilate. But the truth that Jesus came to bear witness to was too much for Pilate's pride. And I I think that Pilate's question, his cynicism, provides an example for us and a warning for us. Cynicism can serve as a defense mechanism 
for us. We've been hurt in the past, we become cynical, and we use cynicism like Pilate to shut down the conversation because the conversation is getting uncomfortable. And so we respond with harsh or cynical tones because we don't want to go where we're uncomfortable. Friends, if you notice cynicism in your heart, don't let it sit there. Go to God with it. Because cynicism can be a sign that we're becoming more unyielding than a strong city. That we're at risk of becoming so hard-hearted that we become deaf to God's loving invitation, his loving appeal. Verse 38, after he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. So we've seen offense all over the text. First, Pilate is offended by the Jews. Then he goes in and talks to Jesus, and he's offended by Jesus. Then he goes back outside. Sadly, one way that people who are offended or are hurt nurse a wounded ego is by belittling others. If they can bring others down, that makes them feel better about themselves. And that's what we see happening here. When Pilate offers to release Jesus, he asks them in verse 39, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? He knows that that's a title that makes these Jewish leaders' blood boil. And he says it, I think, intentionally to make their blood boil. He's antagonizing them in order to remind them, I'm the one in charge. What are you going to do about it? So after antagonizing them, trying to belittle them, Pilate comes up with a plan. I'll offer Barabbas instead. Now, Barabbas, we're told in verse 40, was a robber, but you'll notice a footnote there in your text. The word for robber is more than that of a petty thief. Uh, it's a, an insurrectionist. It's a terrorist. It's a, and we know from other accounts that, that Barabbas was a murderer. So he's already a convicted murderer, insurrectionist, terrorist, Pilate already has declared Jesus innocent. And Pilate assumes that because Jesus is innocent, he's going to put forward such a horrendous criminal that they're going to let Jesus, they're going to let Jesus go. Then he can let Jesus go, and he can save face in the process. Problem is, Pilate underestimates the crowd's hatred of Jesus. Verse 40, not this man, we want Barabbas. So now Pilate's plan failed. The crowd's pushing to crucify Jesus and to let Barabbas go. So the question here at this point in the story is, what will Pilate do? Scene number two. Scene number two, a long-suffering king. Look with me at chapter 19, verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! They struck him with their hands. 
Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold, the man. In chapter 18, Pilate wanted the crowd to respect him. When they didn't, Pilate got harsh and was belittling towards the crowds. Pilate knew that Jesus was innocent, but he didn't know how to release him after the bloodthirsty crowds chose Barabbas. So now he's in a pickle. He's trapped. Proverbs 29, 25 says, The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Fear of man lays a snare. Pilate was trapped. He was ensnared by his fear of man. And sadly, rather than doing the right thing and courageously letting Jesus go free because he knew he was innocent, Pilate comes up with a new plan. All right? I'll punish Jesus. I'll make him look so pathetic that I'll try to stir up sympathy from the crowds so that they'll let him go. So he has him flogged, mocked, beaten, bloody. And then Pilate brings this Jesus, bloody, beat to a pulp, wearing a crown of thorns and a a, a purple robe, which is a color of royalty meant to mock him. And he says to the crowd, behold, you're a man. As if, as if to say, look at this pathetic man. Hasn't he suffered enough? Let's just let him go. But once again, he underestimates the crowd's hatred of Jesus. His plan fails again. Look at verse 6. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. And the Jews answered him, Well, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. <laughs> Once again, we see Pilate bouncing around like a pinball between the crowds and Jesus, he's trapped by his fear of man. Trying to find a solution, he can't. He goes back and forth, back and forth, desperately trying to figure out how to get through this. Because Pilate knows that Jesus is innocent. He announces his innocence three times in the text. But the crowds are relentless. They're relentless. They're joining in a common voice for the demand to crucify him, crucify him. 
And when the mob explains that Jesus ought to die because he made himself the son of God, the text tells us that Pilate was even more afraid. Verse 8. Not only had he failed to get the unruly crowd under control, Pilate had just tortured and humiliated Jesus in his efforts to do so. So if Jesus is innocent, and if Jesus really is the son of God, uh uh-oh, what sort of revenge could he take out against Pilate? No wonder he's afraid. Things were getting out of hand for Pilate. So once again, he leaves the crowd and he retreats indoors. And he demands answers from Jesus. Where are you from, he asks. Now, as John's readers, we know where Jesus is from. This has been from chapter one. Jesus has come from God. His authority is from God. He's sent from God. He's the son of God. We know where he's from. He's God in the flesh, meant to show us the Father, to bring life and salvation. But Jesus already told Pilate where he is from in verses 36 and 37 of chapter 18. And when Jesus told Pilate where he's from, Pilate got upset. What is truth? And he shuts the conversation down. So Pilate's asking the question again, where are you from? But he's not listening. He's not willing to hear what Jesus is saying. He just wants a different answer. So he keeps asking the same question, asks the same question. But again, Jesus, he will not be bullied or threatened or intimidated by Pilate asking the same question over and over and over again. He won't change his answer to appease Pilate. Now, Pilate may have been able to intimidate prisoners in the past because of his powerful position. He's the governor of Judea. But it's not working with Jesus. And Jesus' silence, the fact that Jesus is unimpressed with Pilate, irritates him. And so he reminds Jesus, don't you know that I have the authority to release you? Don't you know that I have the authority to crucify you? You should be scared of me. Why aren't you scared of me? (laughs) Jesus, calm and cool, looks at Pilate and reminds him, you have no authority over me at all, unless it had been given you from above. Friends, when you're offended by someone who cancels their appointment with you for something more important, when you're offended because they didn't invite you at all, when you're offended by when you're offended by a friend's low opinion of you, you're shocked. When you're offended by their criticism of you, it hurts. Right? Let's be honest, it hurts. But the issue is not simply you and I being insecure. The issue is not just that we're thin-skinned. At the root of our being easily offended is pride and idolatry. We are offended by someone's low opinion of us because it's not the high opinion that we actually have of ourselves. We may not say it out loud, but deep down, we think pretty highly of ourselves. And the fact that you don't share that opinion of me is offensive. 
We want others to see us as wise and successful and beautiful and a good person. Any challenge to our self-image is offensive. And it results in our anger, our bitterness, our resentment, our ill-tempered self-pity. How could they think that of me? Do you see that in your heart? I confess to you, I do. And I hate it. So how do we break free? How can we change? I think the way that John helps us to change is by lifting up Jesus and then showing how different he is than Pilate. Look in the mirror at Pilate and then look to Jesus, the king who's long-suffering. Friends, I'm so humbled by Jesus in this second scene. If anyone ever had a right to be offended, it was him. He was innocent. The only innocent human being, by the way, who ever walked this planet. And he came not out of malice and hatred to make your life miserable. He came out of love for you and me. He came in love for Pilate. He came in love for these people that are putting him on trial, trying to get him killed. His concern for them and us today is for our good. Jesus was misunderstood, slandered. He was labeled as a traitor worthy of death, and nothing could be farther from the truth. He is the perfection of beauty. He is the definition of goodness. Never before had someone been more deserving to wear the crown, to be honored, to be trusted, to be worshipped. But instead of that, they shove a crown of thorns on his head until blood would drip all over his face onto his robe. They put a purple robe on his back to mock him. You can hear the soldiers laughing as they mockingly bow down. Hail, king of the Jews! Only to stand up and then punch him in the face. Spit on him. And make no mistake, Jesus is not helpless. Jesus is not powerless. He's the son of God. All he has to do is say one word and these little punks, he can wipe them out. But he doesn't. Like a lamb that goes to the slaughter, he's silent out of love for sinners like you and me. Someone has once said that meekness is not weakness. It's power under control. Meekness is not weakness. It's power under control. And friends, that's Jesus. Ooh, that's Jesus. I pray that when you see Jesus being punched when you see him being mocked, when you see his self-control, you know who he is, you know his innocence, you see how he's responding to their mistreatment of him, and he's not, 
He's not retaliating. I pray that we see how glorious he is. He's showing us his glory. Proverbs 19.11, it is the glory of a man to overlook an offense. Friends, when I see Jesus like this in scene two, I will confess to you I'm ashamed. (laughs) I'm ashamed how often I take offense at someone else's low opinion of me. How could they think that about me? I won't, tell, I won't say that out loud, but that's what my heart's thinking. Friends, when a proud heart takes offense, how can we break free? 1 Peter 2.19 says this. This is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. So to overlook an offense, we are to be mindful of God. Don't dwell on the offense. That's the temptation, to replay the offense over and over on repeat throughout the day. Don't do that. Peter says, don't do that. Be mindful of God. Don't look within. Don't look at the offense and dwell on it. Be mindful of God. Look to God. Remember who he is for you in the moment that you are offended at the dinner table, in the conference room, in the grocery store, wherever you're at. Be mindful of God. Scott Hubbard notes being mindful of God means remembering remembering three things. Let me tell you those three things. Number one, remember God sees every offense. God sees it. The sting of an offense can tempt us to think that God is not there, that God does not care. How can he let this happen? But Psalm 8 verse 4 promises that God is mindful of us. God sees your hurt God sees the offense, and he cares for you. No matter how big or small the offense is, don't believe the lie that he doesn't care or doesn't see. He sees and he cares. Number two, God sends every offense. So God sees every offense. Number two, God sends every offense. Remember, Pilate had Jesus flogged, but Jesus knew that he had no authority over him at all unless it had been given him from above. Jesus understands where the offense comes from. Now, a knife can bring a lot of pain and do a lot of damage, but there's a huge difference between a knife in the hand of a thug and a scalpel in the hand of a surgeon. One brings death, the other preserves life. And I think what we're meant to see here is that God being in control transforms the offense from being a knife that kills and transforms it into a scalpel that gives and preserves life. Knowing that God sends the offense and that God loves you and that God is good transforms how we think about that offense. Number three, God will judge every offense. So God sees every offense, God sends every offense. Number three, God will judge every offense. Overlooking an offense does not mean that Jesus is indifferent to wrongdoing or evil. In fact, he calls out Pilate and he calls out the religious, religious leader's sin in verse 11. In fact, we know that God cares about sin and he cares deeply about injustice because in a moment he will go to the cross and die for that injustice and die for our sin to uphold justice. And so we, the point is, because God will judge every offense, we can let go of bitterness, we can let go of resentment because we know that God will judge every offense. Friends, if you and a friend are both offended, kind of like 
Pilate and the Jewish crowd. If you're both offended, you may find yourselves repaying their harsh word with a cold shoulder. I'm saying I talk to them. <laughs> and before long, you and this other person who are both offended will become untangled, both of you being unyielding, and you'll both spiral downward together. Friends, if that's you, if you're caught in a, in a quarrel, and both you and the other offended party are unyielding, why not be the first person in that quarrel to humble yourself? Why not be the first person to break the cycle? Let me just talk to you husbands for a little bit. Husbands, Ephesians 5 says that you are the head of your household. You have a position of leadership. That does not mean that you're the boss who gets to do whatever you want and boss people around the house. Leadership means, in this case, being the first person to humble yourself. It means taking responsibility for the quarrel. And rather than letting the thing go down the toilet with both parties spiraling and, and refusing to be humble, husbands, you have the God-given responsibility to be the first person to humble yourself, admit your wrong, don't cast blame, accept the responsibility, and seek reconciliation with your spouse. That's what leadership looks like. Got it? When you're offended, be mindful of God because he sees every offense, he sends every offense, and he will judge every offense. But, okay, that's good, but how, what makes this possible? Where does this ability to overlook an offense begin? That brings us to our last scene, scene number three, deliverance. Verses 12 through 16. Verse 12, from then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement, and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now, it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was the sixth hour. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, behold your king. And they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus. Friends, though Pilate knew that Jesus was innocent, Pilate was trapped by the demands of a crowd and his fear of getting in trouble with Caesar. And in the end, Pilate caves. Verse 16, so he delivered him over to them to be crucified. If you pause the story right there in verse 16, it doesn't look good for Christianity. But things don't always appear as they seem. When a man, what a man meant for evil... With Pilate, God sovereignly turns and uses for good. Compared to God, which is the standard that we will be judged by, you are not good. I am not good. No one is good, not even one. And so as the Jews rejected Jesus, you hear them blaspheming, we have no king but Caesar. In the same way, we have rejected God's good rule over our lives in an effort to establish our self-rule. 
But the Bible is very clear, left to ourselves, the wages of our rebellion, the wages of our sin is death and hell. That's what we deserve. But listen, Jesus was delivered to death that he might deliver us from death. Jesus was delivered. He was delivered to death that he might deliver us from death. In the Garden of Eden, Satan told our first parents that life and joy and pleasure and happiness comes outside of God. It comes by being independent or free from God's rule in your life. But that was a lie. Instead of life, their choice to believe Satan brought death. And in rejecting God, who created them, who loved them, who cared for them, who was their refuge, who gave them meaning and purpose, Adam and Eve, the moment they rejected God and pushed him away, they felt vulnerable. And they hid. And we have been hiding like Adam and Eve ever since. Whether it's in our real life relationships or whether it's on our social media platforms, deep down we know that we're holding up a house of cards that could fall over any second. Our self-image, our life feels vulnerable. And so like Pilate, we frantically run around our day shifting back and forth, trying to make sure people think of us one way or the other. And we become easily offended desperate to hold up our self-image. I want you to think about me this way. It's exhausting. It's enslaving. The Jesus of the Bible comes to us and he makes demands, loving demands. He calls us to put to death our old life that we're trying to prop up and impress everybody with. He calls us to put to death our old life so that we can find true and lasting life in him. Jesus lovingly tears us down our old life to build us back up that we might know eternal life. But that was too much for Pilate. Successful, powerful, rich, Pilate thought that he had a good thing going and so he found Jesus and his demands offensive. And offended, Pilate became more unyielding than a strong city. He shuts his heart off to Jesus and he walks away. What is truth? But Jesus says to us in Luke 7, 23, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Blessed, happy. Friends, Pilate is a mirror for us today. Don't take offense at Jesus. Don't run from him. Embrace him. Turn from your sin. If you're not yet a Christian, turn from your sin. Trust in Christ. Run to him. He's good. He's the God who died and rose again for our salvation. In verse 13, Pilate sat down, we're told, on the judgment seat while Jesus' accusers screamed, away with him, away with him, crucify him. And yet Jesus is unflinching. He's not afraid. Church, today Satan stands as our accuser, day in and day out, telling the judge your sins. Look at what she did. Look at what he did. They're guilty. And Satan, our accuser, is right about our sin. But those who trust Jesus need not fear. 
because Pilate's not the one on the, throne, on, the, on the judgment seat in the last day. Jesus is. He sees all the wicked things that we've done. Nothing's hidden from him. He knows the worst thing about you. But he took all of it. Your sins, past, present, and future. And on the cross, Colossians 3, says, 2 says that he nailed it to the cross. Triumphing over him who accuses you. So that the legal demands against you because of your guilt and sin, he took it. He paid the penalty for our sin that we couldn't afford. Therefore, church, we can stop pretending. We don't have to prop up this image of ourselves that's better than it actually is. We can be honest about our sin. We can be honest about our failures. We don't need to frantically run around like Pilate trying to prop up an image of ourselves that we want people to see. And so the next time, friends, the next time the idea of yourself that you're trying to prop up is threatened, the next time someone criticizes you and in pride you're tempted to take offense, remember this, God already knows the worst thing about you and the cross is proof of that. But that same cross is proof that the God who knows the worst thing about you fully loves you and accepts you because your sin has been nailed to the cross. And that's what matters most. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for your son. Though he, there was nothing in us that, that, that deserved the sacrifice that he took, that he made for us. You in your love, in your mercy, in your justice, in your goodness came. You sent your son. He died and rose again. So Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that you are the God who is merciful and gracious and but who will not overlook sin. You, you uphold what is right and good. So we praise you for that. Lord, 2,000 years ago, we, we believe that these Men falsely accused Jesus, mocked him, and crowned him with a mocking crown and a mocking robe. Lord, today, we crown you. We bow down before you. We declare that you are the King of kings who is worthy of our life, our love, our trust, our worship. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.